0: Today I'll be reading Abitron Austria GmbH v. Hetronic International, Inc. Justice Alito delivered the opinion of the court, in which Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Jackson joined. Justice Jackson filed a concurring opinion. Justice Sotomayor filed an opinion concurring in the judgment in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Kagan and Barrett joined. This case requires us to decide the foreign reach of 15 U.S.C. section 11141A and section 1125A1, two provisions of the Lanham Act that prohibit trademark infringement. Applying the presumption against extraterritoriality, we hold that these provisions are not extraterritorial and that they extend only to claims where the claimed infringing use in commerce is domestic. Part 1. This case concerns a trademark dispute between a United States company, Hetronic International Inc., and six foreign parties. Five companies and one individual, collectively Abitron. Hetronic manufactures radio remote controls for construction equipment. It sells and services these products, which employ a distinctive black and yellow color scheme to distinguish them from those of its competitors in more than 45 countries. Abitron originally operated as a licensed distributor for Hetronic but it later concluded that it held the rights to much of Hetronic's intellectual property, including the marks on the products at issue in this suit. After reverse-engineering Hetronic's products, Abitron began to sell Hetronic-branded products that incorporated parts sourced from third parties. Abitron mostly sold its products in Europe, but it also made some direct sales into the United States. Hetronic sued Abitron in the Western District of Oklahoma for, as relevant here, trademark violations under two related provisions of the Lanham Act. First, it invoked Section 11141A, which prohibits the unauthorized use in commerce of any reproduction of a registered mark in connection with the sale, offering for sale, distribution, or advertising of any goods or services when such use is likely to cause confusion. Hetronic also invoked Section 1125A1, which prohibits the use in commerce of a protected mark, whether registered or not, that is likely to cause confusion. Hetronic sought damages under these provisions for Abitron's infringing acts worldwide. Throughout the proceedings below, Abitron argued that Hetronic sought an impermissible extraterritorial application of the Lanham Act, but the district court rejected this argument, and a jury later awarded Hetronic approximately ninety-six million dollars in damages related to Abitron's global employment of Hetronic's marks. This amount thus included damages from Abitron's direct sales to customers in the United States its foreign sales of products for which the foreign buyers designated the United States as the ultimate destination, and its foreign sales of products that did not end up in the United States. The district court later entered a permanent injunction preventing Abatron from using the marks anywhere in the world. On appeal, the Tenth Circuit narrowed the injunction to cover only certain countries, but otherwise affirmed the judgment. It concluded that the Lanham Act extended to all of Abitron's foreign infringing conduct because the impacts within the United States were of a sufficient character and magnitude as would give the United States a reasonably strong interest in the litigation. We granted certiorari to resolve a circuit split over the extraterritorial reach of the Lanham Act. Part 2 Section A. It is a long standing principle of American law that legislation of Congress, unless a contrary intent appears, is meant to apply only within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. We have repeatedly explained that this principle, which we call the presumption against extraterritoriality, refers to a presumption against application to conduct in the territory of another sovereign. In other words, exclusively foreign conduct is generally the domain of foreign law. The presumption serves to avoid the international discord that can result when U.S. law is applied to conduct in foreign countries and reflects the common-sense notion that Congress generally legislates with domestic concerns in mind. Applying the presumption against extraterritoriality involves a two-step framework. At Step 1, we determine whether a provision is extraterritorial, and that determination turns on whether Congress has affirmatively and unmistakably instructed that the provision at issue should apply to foreign conduct. If Congress has provided an unmistakable instruction that the provision is extraterritorial, then claims alleging exclusively foreign conduct may proceed subject to the limits Congress has or has not imposed on the statute's foreign application. If a provision is not extraterritorial, we move to step two, which resolves whether the suit seeks a permissible domestic or impermissible foreign application of the provision. To make that determination, Courts must start by identifying the focus of Congressional concern underlying the provision at issue. The focus of a statute is the object of its solicitude, which can include the conduct it seeks to regulate as well as the parties and interests it seeks to protect or vindicate. Step 2 does not end with identifying statutory focus we have repeatedly and explicitly held that courts must identify the statute's focus and ask whether the conduct relevant to that focus occurred in United States territory. Thus, to prove that a claim involves a domestic application of a statute, plaintiffs must establish that the conduct relevant to the statute's focus occurred in the United States. Step 2 is designed to apply the presumption against extraterritoriality to claims that involve both domestic and foreign activity, separating the activity that matters from the activity that does not. After all, we have long recognized that the presumption would be meaningless if any domestic conduct could defeat it. Thus, if the conduct relevant to the statute's focus occurred in the United States then the case involves a permissible domestic application of the statute, even if other conduct occurred abroad. And if the relevant conduct occurred in another country, then the case involves an impermissible extraterritorial application, regardless of any other conduct that occurred in U.S. territory. Of course, if all the conduct regarding the violations took place outside the United States, then courts do not need to determine the statute's focus at all. In that circumstance, there would be no domestic conduct that could be relevant to any focus, so the focus test has no filtering role to play. Section B With this well-established framework in mind, the first question is whether the relevant provisions of the Lanham Act provide a clear affirmative indication that they apply extraterritorially. They do not. It is a rare statute that clearly evidences extraterritorial effect despite lacking an express statement of extraterritoriality. Our decision in RJR Nabisco illustrates the clarity required at Step 1 of our framework. There we held that the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act could have extraterritorial application in some circumstances because many of its predicate offenses plainly apply to at least some foreign conduct, and at least one predicate applies only to conduct occurring outside the United States. Here, neither provision at issue provides an express statement of extraterritorial application or any other clear indication that it is one of the rare provisions that nonetheless applies abroad. Both simply prohibit the use in commerce under congressionally prescribed conditions of protected trademarks when that use is likely to cause confusion. Hetronic acknowledges that neither provision on its own signals extraterritorial application, but it argues that the requisite indication can be found in the Lanamex definition of commerce, which applies to both provisions. Under that definition, commerce means all commerce which may lawfully be regulated by Congress. Hetronic offers two reasons why this definition is sufficient to rebut the presumption against extraterritoriality. First, it argues that the language naturally leads to this result because Congress can lawfully regulate foreign conduct under the Foreign Commerce Clause. Second, it contends that extraterritoriality is confirmed by the fact that this definition is unique in the U.S. Code and thus differs from what it describes as boilerplate definitions of commerce in other statutes. Neither reason is sufficient. When applying the presumption, we have repeatedly held that even statutes that expressly refer to foreign commerce when defining commerce are not extraterritorial. This conclusion dooms Hetronic's argument, if an express statutory reference to foreign commerce is not enough to rebut the presumption, the same must be true of a definition of commerce that refers to Congress's authority to regulate foreign commerce. That result does not change simply because the provision refers to all commerce Congress can regulate and the mere fact that the Lanham Act contains a substantively similar definition that departs from the so-called boilerplate definitions used in other statutes cannot justify a different conclusion either. Section C Because Section 11141A and Section 1125A1 are not extraterritorial, We must consider when claims involve domestic applications of these provisions. As discussed above, the proper test requires determining the provision's focus and then ascertaining whether Hetronic can establish that the conduct relevant to that focus occurred in the United States. Much of the parties' dispute in this case misses this critical point, and centers on the focus of the relevant provisions without regard to the conduct relevant to that focus. Abitron contends that Section 11141A and Section 1125A1 focus on preventing infringing use of trademarks, while Hedronic argues that they focus both on protecting the goodwill of mark owners and on preventing consumer confusion. The United States, as Amicus Curiae, argues that the provisions focus on only likely consumer confusion. The parties all seek support for their positions in Steele v. Boliva Watch Company, 1952, but that decision is of little assistance here. There, we considered a suit alleging that the defendant, through activity in both the United States and Mexico, had violated the Lanham Act by producing and selling watches stamped with a trademark that was protected in the United States. Although we allowed the claim to proceed, our analysis understandably did not follow the two step framework that we would develop decades later. Our decision was instead narrow and fact-bound. It rested on the judgment that the facts in the record, when viewed as a whole, were sufficient to rebut the presumption against extraterritoriality. In reaching this conclusion, we repeatedly emphasized both that the defendant committed essential steps in the course of his infringing conduct in the United States, and that his conduct was likely to, and did cause, consumer confusion, in the United States. Because Steele implicated both domestic conduct and a likelihood of domestic confusion, it does not tell us which one determines the domestic applications of Section 11141A and Section 1125A1. With steel put aside, then, we think the party's particular debate over the focus of section 11141a and section 1125a1 in the abstract, does not exhaust the relevant inquiry. The ultimate question regarding permissible domestic application turns on the location of the conduct relevant to the focus, and the conduct relevant to any focus the parties have proffered is infringing use in commerce as the Act defines it. This conclusion follows from the text and context of section 11141a and section 1125a1. Both provisions prohibit the unauthorized use in commerce of a protected trademark when, among other things, that use is likely to cause confusion. In other words, Congress proscribed the use of a mark in commerce under certain conditions. This conduct, to be sure, must create a sufficient risk of confusion, but confusion is not a separate requirement. Rather, it is simply a necessary characteristic of an offending use. Because Congress has premised liability on a specific action, a particular sort of use in commerce, That specific action would be the conduct relevant to any focus on offer today. In sum, as this case comes to us, use in commerce is the conduct relevant to any potential focus of section 11141A and section 1125A1 because Congress deemed a violation of either provision to occur each time a mark is used in commerce, in the way Congress described, with no need for any actual confusion. Under Step 2 of our extraterritoriality standard, then, use in commerce provides the dividing line between foreign and domestic applications of these Lanham Act provisions. Part 3. Resisting this straightforward application of our precedent, Justice Sotomayor concludes that step two of our extraterritoriality framework turns solely on whether the object of the statute's focus is found in, or occurs in, the United States. Applied to the Lanham Act, the upshot of this focus-only standard is that any claim involving a likelihood of consumer confusion in the United States would be a domestic application of the Act. This approach is wrong, and would give the Lanham Act an untenably broad reach that undermines our extraterritoriality framework. Section A. To justify looking only to a provision's focus, Justice Sotomayor maintains that that an application of a statute can still be domestic when foreign conduct is implicated. If this assertion simply means that a permissible domestic application can occur even when some foreign activity is involved in the case, then it is true, but misses the point. When a claim involves both domestic and foreign activity, the question is whether the conduct relevant to the statute's focus occurred in the United States. If that conduct occurred in the United States, then the case involves a permissible domestic application of the statute, even if other conduct occurred abroad. But if the conduct relevant to the focus occurred in a foreign country, then the case involves an impermissible extraterritorial application, regardless of any other conduct that occurred in U.S. territory. These holdings were not, as Justice Sotomayor suggests, premised on this Court's first concluding, or assuming without deciding, that the focus of the provision at issue was conduct. They were unambiguously part of this Court's articulation of the two-step framework, and in each case, these holdings came before we began analyzing the focus of the provisions at issue. For this reason, none of our cases has ever held that statutory focus was dispositive at step two of our framework. To the contrary, we have acknowledged that courts do not need to determine a statute's focus when all conduct regarding the violations took place outside the United States that conclusion, as well as the decisions applying it, are inexplicable under a focus-only standard. Beyond straying from established precedent, a focus-only approach would create headaches for lower courts required to grapple with this new approach. For statutes, like this one, regulating conduct, the location of the conduct relevant to the focus provides a clear signal at both steps of our two-step framework. Under Justice Sotomayor's standard, by contrast, litigants and lower courts are told that the Step 2 inquiry turns on the focus alone, which, as we have said, can be conduct, parties, or interests, that Congress sought to protect or regulate. As a result, almost any claim involving exclusively foreign conduct could be repackaged as a domestic application, and almost any claim under a non-extraterritorial provision could be defeated by labeling it a foreign application, even if the conduct at issue was exclusively domestic. This is far from the measure of certainty that the presumption against extraterritoriality is designed to provide. Section B. Justice Sotomayor's expansive understanding of the Lanham domestic applications threatens to negate the presumption against extraterritoriality. In Morrison v. National Australia Bank, 2010, we warned that the presumption against extraterritorial application would be a craven watchdog, indeed, if it retreated to its kennel whenever some domestic activity is involved in the case. If a claim under the act involves a domestic application, whenever particular effects are likely to occur in the United States, the watchdog is nothing more than a muzzled chihuahua. Under such a test, it would not even be necessary that some domestic activity be involved. It would be enough for there to be merely a likelihood of an effect in this country. Applying that standard here would require even less connection to the United States than some explicitly extraterritorial statutes, which must have, at a minimum, actual domestic effects to be invoked. This approach threatens international discord. In nearly all countries, including the United States, trademark law is territorial i.e., a trademark is recognized as having a separate existence in each sovereign territory in which it is registered or legally recognized as a mark. Thus, each country is empowered to grant trademark rights and police infringement within its borders. This principle has long been enshrined in international law. Under the Paris Convention for the Protection of Industrial Property, A mark duly registered in a country of the Union shall be regarded as independent of marks registered in other countries of the Union, and the seizure of infringing goods is authorized on importation to a country where such mark or trade name is entitled to legal protection. The Convention likewise provides mechanisms for trademark holders to secure trademark protection in other countries under the domestic law of those countries. The Lanham Act, which is designed to implement treaties and conventions respecting trademarks, incorporates this territorial premise, mandating that registration of a foreign trademark in the United States shall be independent of the registration in the country of origin, and that the rights of that mark in the United States are governed by domestic law. Because of the territorial nature of trademarks, The probability of incompatibility with the applicable laws of other countries is so obvious that if Congress intended such foreign application, it would have addressed the subject of conflicts with foreign laws and procedures. The use of a mark, even confined to one country, will often have effects that radiate to any number of countries, and when determining exactly what form of abstract consumer confusion is sufficient in a given case, The judiciary would be thrust into the unappetizing task of navigating foreign policy disputes belonging to the political branches. If enough countries took this approach, the trademark system would collapse. This tension has not been lost on other sovereign nations. The European Commission gravely warns this Court against applying the Lanham Act to acts of infringement occurring in the European Union and outside of the United States. To police allegations of infringement occurring in Germany, it continues, would be an unseemly act of meddling in extraterritorial affairs, given international treaty obligations that equally bind the United States. As the Commission and other foreign amici recognize, The system only works if all participating states respect their obligations, including the limits on their power. It thus bears repeating our long-standing admonition that United States law governs domestically but does not rule the world. Part 4 In sum, we hold that Section 11141A and Section 1125A1 are not extraterritorial and that the infringing use of commerce of a trademark provides the dividing line between foreign and domestic applications of these provisions. Under the Act, the term use in commerce means the bona fide use of a mark in the ordinary course of trade, where the mark serves to identify and distinguish the mark user's goods and to indicate the source of the goods. Because the proceedings below were not in accord with this understanding of extraterritoriality, we vacate the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.